morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans, by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, February 2nd, we are studying John chapter 6, verses 41 to 51. Jesus tells us that he is the living bread that came down from heaven, and the bread that he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppe serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, glad to be with you again today. So we get started today. Let's talk a little bit of context. We're really slowing down here in John chapter 6. What should we know about this chapter, what Jesus has been up to, and anything from the Gospel of John that'll help us with these verses today? Sure. I guess to me the main thing is that we're going to be talking about uh, the bread that came down from heaven. And so, you know, we might want to kind of back up just a touch to say, well, why are we talking about bread at all in one sense? And so the immediate context, or I don't know if immediate, how far you uh, allow that term to to reach, but you know, uh, pretty quickly before this, we have the feeding of the five thousand, uh, and then we basically have the crowds gathering back around uh, Jesus. But he corrects them because he says they're looking for the food that perishes instead of uh, that eternal food that he wishes to give to them. Um, and then that kind of gets them in a discussion about bread. And when you talk about bread among the Jewish people, one of the key thoughts is always going to be the manna uh, that was provided in the wilderness. And so uh, they look rightly at that as a miracle that God did, uh, and particularly in this context that he did through Moses, right? Moses is sort of validated in their mind through the giving of that miracle. And so they ask Jesus for a similar miracle. Uh, and of course, you know, they give the idea that if he can produce one, well, they'll, you know, be right with him. Uh, but that's kind of the context is, you know, there's all this talk about bread, uh, food, and the question of, okay, what can any particular bread do in terms of life, uh, both temporary life now, and then Jesus is going to push us to think about eternal life. Talk more about the fact that Jesus is talking about bread here. As you said, it goes back into the context of the feeding of the 5,000, which happened just at the beginning of this chapter. And I, I think that counts as immediate context because we've really slowed this chapter down. And Jesus has been preaching here in the synagogue in Capernaum for quite some time here in the context of that feeding of 5,000. But in terms of the the bread image that Jesus uses. We heard him in the last text say, I am the bread of life. And he's going to repeat that and build on that in this text. What is it about bread that makes that the, besides the feeding of the 5,000, what is it about bread that Jesus wants to latch onto as he's teaching about who he is? Well, I guess in the most general sense, I think he uses bread here because I think it was almost universally understood to be the staple of life. You know, we 
uh, modern people, you know, uh, obviously we have some people that have uh, allergies to things that lead them to kind of shy away from bread. But I always think the ancient people would think we're kind of odd that we don't just accept that bread is a, a, yeah. the staple of life. And part of that is we're blessed to have such a variety of foods. But but for most people of most times, the question was, right, did you have bread? If you had bread, you were likely to survive, right? And if you didn't have bread, you were not likely to survive. And so I think, you know, first and foremost, that's kind of the, um, I guess, you know, when he's talking to the people, he wants, he, this is something they just assume is a staple of life. So it's a beautiful um, metaphor that he can use. But then again, uh, it gets wrapped up into these other stories from the Old Testament of Moses. And even, you know, when we get into times of tabernacle and temple, the the bread uh, that's placed on the altar and things like that. There's there's just a lot of talk of of bread. Hmm. And so when it comes to bread, then that's the most basic thing that if you don't have it, you won't be alive. That's essentially the way Jesus is using bread. And then he's speaking about himself in that way, in a greater sense, not just for physical life, but here for eternal life. Apart from Jesus and the sustenance that he gives, you're not going to have life. That's kind of the comp- the point of comparison between Jesus and bread here. Yeah, I think that's that's well stated. That yeah, it's just it's it's that staple. It's that necessity of what one needs. And he certainly, um, you know, we'll, he'll we'll talk about this in a second. But through these words, right, he's drawing people to himself and to the Father uh, in order that they might have this bread and live. All right, so let's turn to the text. We are in John chapter 6 this morning, starting at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him, about Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's our text for today. That's John 6, verses 41 to 51. So, Pastor Hoppy, again, we're part of a larger conversation In John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking in the synagogue at Capernaum, which we will find out in verse 59, but we've already kind of brought that in, so we have that context in mind. The Jews grumble at the beginning of this text. Talk about the grumbling and why they're grumbling in those first couple of verses. Right. So one, I think we can always say, right, when this uh, phrase grumbling is used, um, you know, I don't know, to me, this is almost John being very crafty with his words, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. The people are bringing back the Exodus times. And so uh, John here, obviously, by the Holy Spirit, also uh, likens these people to those who grumbled 
uh, even about the manna in uh, the old uh, wilderness times. And so uh, they're grumbling. But in this particular section, the, the main thing they're grumbling about, I would say to start with, is not that Jesus says he's bread, but that he says he's the bread that came down from heaven. And they are grumbling about this um, in one sense in a very rational way. Now, rational not here necessarily meaning right, but they're just using their reason and their senses. And they're saying, well, as far as we know, now we've seen this Jesus, um, you know, grow up among us. And he's been with his, you know, father, as they suppose, Joseph. Uh, and his mother, Mary. So how can this guy possibly say that he is coming down from heaven? So there's there's sort of just this rational thing where they say it can't be because we know Jesus, we know where he came from. And then there's sort of a second level, which is just to take that claim that if he did come down from heaven, He's making quite a claim about his own being and uh, his own relationship to the Father. And so I think it's kind of twofold here. There's just this basic, that can't be, but then there's that, you know, even if it could be, (laughs) it still can't be because um, you're speaking in a way that only God should speak. With that first mention of the word grumbling that you you brought up. I think you're right that we should think about the Exodus context, particularly, as you said earlier, we're, we've been talking about manna, the bread that comes down from heaven. That's what's on their minds. They're going to keep bringing that up. It, it continues in the conversation. So to see the word grumbling and think back to the context of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness on the way to Sinai, certainly that makes a lot of sense. What What is that... What does that parallel teach us? I mean, beyond the fact that it's it's kind of cool, I, I like when those parallels happen. But what does that what does that teach teach us about Jesus, his ministry, these people who are listening? What's the what's the import of of recognizing that parallel? I guess is my question. Well, I think in one way there's very much a lesson to be learned in the sense of in the Old Testament times there in the Exodus uh, in the wilderness wanderings, um, God is giving them a gift, a great gift. Uh, Again, that staple that they needed so that they would survive. And yet they respond even to that gift with grumbling. And I think Jesus here is really saying, you're doing the same thing now with the bread that came down from heaven, uh, you know, who who I am. Um, And, you know, he's saying again, God's giving you this gift and yet you are grumbling. The other thing I was thinking about in preparing for this text is that think about how all the miracles or at least all, at least almost all of the miracles, and maybe you can think of an exception, but their effect is always temporary. So, you know, the Red Sea is parted, uh, then it goes back down, right? Uh, Or the Jordan, right, is is, uh, held up, and then it continues to flow normally even and all the way up to the resurrections that we have in the Bible from the dead. Now, again, we don't always get the result, but it certainly seems, maybe because we're not told otherwise, that those people that are raised up eventually do die again. 
Um, and so even the most miraculous of miracles, which at the time were astounding, their impact was still temporary. And this is where Jesus is going to kind of throughout this whole section, he's going to set himself apart even from the other miracles. And that is not to demean those other miracles, to say, oh, who cares about manna? Who cares about Moses? But it is to say that he is of a completely uh, different level of miracles. He is the fulfillment of those things, uh, which were sort of the in part uh, um, miracles. Now we see it in full. To that, the idea that the effect of the miracles is is temporary. I think you're onto something there, and I I do think that especially in John's gospel with the way he speaks about miracles as signs, and so the the need to see them correctly. We've already seen here in the Gospel of John, both in chapter 2, when Jesus cleared out the, the temple and they asked him for a sign, and then again here in chapter 6 earlier when they talk about the signs. Every every time Jesus is asked about a sign or he or the sign is brought up to him, he always takes that forward, not to whatever's happened in the most immediate context, but always as an opportunity to talk about the sign that is his death and his resurrection, even in the, that, and that's true in the synoptics as well. You know, Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah there, but I think we see it, especially here in John, that this, whenever you think about the signs, what he does as, as miracles, if you don't understand them in the light of what he will do in his death and his resurrection, then all you are left is with this temporary, you know, maybe the feeding that fills your belly now to use this context. But ultimately, you're going to be grumbling until you go all the way forward to see how Jesus finishes everything in the sign that is his death and resurrection. Yeah, no. And I guess when I was thinking about it, I, I didn't so much think about Jesus's other miracles, but I think you're certainly right, right? They too are temporary in effect. And and therefore, like you said, Jesus always says, okay, I'm going to always point you ultimately to the thing that is eternal and lasting. So we've got the Jews grumbling. There's the connection to the Exodus, a warning for us to not to grumble when we receive the gifts of God, a warning to, to see Jesus rightly, which is where their objection goes. And you divide it into two parts. Uh, first, they they think they know Jesus, but they really don't. They they think they can know Jesus as the son of Joseph. They know his mom and dad, so certainly he can't be the one he's claiming to be. Talk more about that, The I guess this danger that they're falling into they think they know Jesus, but they really don't know him truly. Uh, elaborate a little bit more on that, because I think there's some some important implications to draw from it. Right. So in the New Testament, we get these phrases a couple times where um, both in regards to Jesus and then also in regards to how we are to think about other people, uh, the apostles say that, you know, we used to view uh, Jesus according to the flesh. And then again, when we look at other people, that we are tempted just to view them solely according to the flesh. And the point here is know that there's more to be seen than what the senses uh, are able to uh, reason out or are able to show us, maybe is a better way to say that. And so here again, like I said, they think you know, they say, well, isn't this Jesus whose father and mother we know? So to them, it's kind of an open and closed case. 
Now, of course, they get Joseph wrong altogether in one sense. And maybe this is easier for us to say, right, than uh, for them to figure out in the day, because again, they, um, you know, if, if they did not, or if they had not already been drawn to God in faith, what else sort of could they assume, I guess? Um, but when Jesus starts speaking, he calls them to believe something that their reason cannot grasp. Um, and Martin Luther, you know, makes this uh, a case, and Luther does this often where he basically says, you know, the reason is a good thing. It's a, a gift of God that he's given to us, but the reason gets out of place if we sort of put it on the throne, if we allow that reason to be the thing that we judge truth by more than listening to what Jesus says, then, you know, if reason aids in that, fine. Uh, but if it doesn't, then reason has to fall in that case uh, to the truth of God. And so I think, you know, they're just kind of using what their brains, their eyes, their ears can show them. And Jesus says, listen, right, to my words. That's, that's the key. So the and and that's sometimes called the the magisterial use of reason, where it gets placed above the text, as opposed to the the ministerial use of reason, in which reason is a servant to the text. So reason's not bad, unless you start placing it over the text and you let your reason dictate the truth as opposed to what Jesus says. Correct, and I think you know I know there's a little controversy sometimes about exactly what Martin Luther. Uh, said at the end of his speech at the Diet of Worms, where he is, you know, this, uh, you know, I can do no other, um, you know, uh, telling, you know, saying to the people that he's going to stand firm, that he's not going to recant. But he does, in most, you know, renditions of that, say, you know, if you can convince me with sound reason or the scriptures. So again, we can see he's not just anti reason. And in fact, you know, the people that he was we'd say most trained by were very big fans of reason. <laughs> um, and yet he came to learn that reason had its limits and so encouraged us uh, to know that too, right? Uh, that big here I stand moment, right, is kind of the one I was referencing. Right, yeah. So, so reason is not bad. It can be a tool, a servant. It's when reason gets in the way of listening to Jesus' words that's when we run afoul. And that's what's happening here for those listening to Jesus. Their reason is getting in the way because they, you know, they're thinking like reasonable people. They know who Joseph and Mary are. They know who Jesus is. Jesus is in Capernaum at this point, which isn't far from where he grew up, and that's his adopted hometown. So it it quote makes sense that they would think this way about Jesus and not believe him when he says, I've come down from heaven. I do think those two things are related. You you brought up both aspects, the matter of his earthly family and this matter of coming down from heaven. The question of, you know, where does Jesus come from or who is the one who sent him to, to use language that he's used before and he'll continue with in this text really seems to be the key here. They're viewing Jesus purely from this earthly perspective. We know his mom and dad, we know his hometown, therefore we know him. Jesus, much like he was trying to get Nicodemus to think about coming down from above, that that's his true source. And and recognizing who he is and where he actually comes from is, is a real big key that definitely seems to be missing for the people listening to him here. 
Right. And they, you know, therefore, I think the overall point might be that if he is just the son of Mary and Joseph, they would view him as an equal who would sort of have to persuade them through reason, through whatever means, I guess. But if they actually were to concede that he was, you know, even here now, let's not get into the question of his actual divinity. Is he the third person, the second person, rather, excuse me, of the Trinity? But just the simple fact that if they concede that he is one, even unto, uh, you know, in likeness towards Moses, well, then they would understand they would have to yield to him by virtue of who sent him and where he came from. So thinking about this as a, a, the larger question of, you know, what do you think about Jesus or grumbling about Jesus because you misunderstand where he comes from? Just thinking back in the Gospel of John, the very first words that John records Jesus speaking are to Andrew and another disciple, probably John himself, and he asks them, what are you seeking? And we talked about that in, in that text, that that question does seem to have a, an overarching role within the Gospel of John. What are you seeking from Jesus? Are you seeking him as he truly has come to give himself? Here it, it seems that these people are not seeking him truly. And this is, I think it's a danger for any of us to, to come to Jesus and think we know him on our own terms. Oh yeah, I I know that Jesus guy. He's a he's a good teacher. Or I know I know Jesus because I, I know his followers and I don't like them, so I don't really like him. I think there's still a number of ways in in our world today in which people kind of assume they know Jesus and they start grumbling rather than letting Jesus tell them who he is so that they would believe in him. This, this just seems to be a, a perennial danger for for any of us, even if it it happens in slightly different ways. Yeah, no, I, I, I see that a lot too, right? And maybe part of it is our particular context in America where um, most people, although I think with the, the youngest uh, of the people in our culture, maybe it's not as true, but for most people, they have heard of Jesus. And even one step further again, they do think they know Jesus, right? They um and a lot of times, like you said, you can get in these conversations where you start to tell them why Jesus actually came or even what he actually taught. And all of a sudden they're like, what? Right. Show me that because yeah. that's not what I've thought. Right. And, and, uh, you know, it's that sort of a little knowledge can be dangerous kind of thing. And, uh, it seems to be the case right now in our culture that you know, people are not going to just say, well, I don't know Jesus, so tell me about him. They're going to say, oh, no, I I know him. And you almost have to kind of, I don't know, almost ignore that and say, well, okay, maybe you do, but can I just tell you, you know, what, what I understand that he has revealed about himself? Hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, and, and very much like the Jews here in this text, they, look, this is Jesus. We know him. We know his mom. We know his dad. How can he say these things? A similar temptation exists today, and, and perhaps even more magnified, where it does seem we just go on based on that soundbite that we've heard about something. Yeah, I know that, and we make the assumptions automatically. And when something contradicts that, then we start to grumble, and particularly again about Jesus. So the the invitation here is to continue to listen to Jesus, to continue. What are you seeking? But to let Him be the one to show you who He is and what He's come to do. 
And so Jesus, for his part, he's he's going to answer this objection. Again, we're seeing this back and forth that's happening here in the synagogue from Capernaum. And we're coming up on a break here in a couple of minutes, Pastor Hoppy, but we can start into Jesus' words in verse 43 and then into 44. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So let's let's start jumping into what Jesus answers to this objection. Well, you know, in one sense, you might expect uh, Jesus, who's sort of being accused um, of speaking wrongly and maybe speaking blasphemously to sort of back down a little, right? I mean, most people would like, whoa, okay, things are getting a little heated. I'll kind of back off. But instead, uh, he kind of tightens the connection between the father and himself, Mm -hmm. right? He he says, you know, first and foremost, basically, you're you're not going to understand who I am unless the father is the one that draws you. Now, this would have been an explosive comment to make because, of course, these people thought they knew well the father as well, right? They, you know, we talked about them thinking they know who Jesus is. Well, they think they know who the father is, and they don't think that has anything to do with this Jesus. And so, Uh, He tightens that connection. He says again that it's the Father who has um, sent him. Uh, And, you know, we're we're not quite there, but in a second, he's going to say that he has seen the Father, right? In a very, um, you know, quite literal sense uh, that he's been with him in heaven. Uh, And so all these things, he really just tightens the connection. uh, And quite frankly, if they didn't think he was speaking blasphemous things before, now they would, right? And they would be blasphemous unless they're true, right? That's kind of the the key thought there. Yeah, and and to call God his Father in this context is definitely tightening that connection, especially since they've emphasized previously that Jesus, they think, is the son of Joseph. So Jesus is going to come back very clearly and say, no, you need to consider who my father is, the one who sent me, that is God himself. And so we're going to see how Jesus continues to tighten that connection and teach the truth about who he is and what he's come to do on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking John chapter 6 with Pastor Philip Hoppy this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, February 2nd. We're studying John chapter 6, verses 41 to 51 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus' answer beginning in verse 43, where he tightens the connection between himself and the Father. In verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I want to spend some time meditating on this verse because it is a very important verse here. And just thinking especially that Jesus says the Father, and he identifies him as the one who sent me, draws him. I'm trying to to picture this in my mind, and I don't want to speak incorrectly, but this is kind of how I'm thinking about it. Jesus is saying, the Father who sent me is drawing people to himself. So the... Again, trying to think about why did Jesus speak about the Father in this way, in this context, the fact that the Father sent Jesus, that's the Father sending his Son so that he would draw people unto himself, almost like the, I don't know, this may be impious, but almost the idea of fishing. The Father sends out his Son to bring the the people to him. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think it I think it does. The, the one thing I find striking, though, is that, you know, Jesus does say here, of himself, right? No one can come to me uh, unless the Father who sends sent me draws him. So um, it's sort of a two-step thing, right? You're drawn to mm-hmm. Jesus, uh, then by virtue of that, you're drawn to the Father, right? Yeah. So there, there's kind of that twofold, but uh, certainly, yeah, that um, Jesus becomes, uh, really, I think in this this text, there's no kind of escaping the the metaphor to say that he becomes the means by which you receive the life of the father right he is again he's that bread that you're going to eat and live forever and so uh, i you know i don't think it it demeans christ at all to speak of him in that way here that that he's that drawing force that god has sent down yeah and i, I appreciate that the way that you you know kept us there attentive to the text. So the the Father draws people to Jesus, but then of course Jesus brings us to the Father as well. Both things are, are happening here. And Jesus says this doesn't happen apart from his work, apart from the Father's work. So to to come to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, this is not a work of of our own human will, but this is the work of God. Jesus makes that pretty plain in verse 44. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, hopefully this kind of brings to to memory and some of the hearers today uh, that, you know, great explanation of the third article of the creed from the small catechism, you know, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. So, you know, it's it's this beautiful passage that does just remind us that Jesus is not grasped by reason alone. And we I think we need to be reminded of that when we're trying to talk to other people as well. We can we especially we've kind of been brought up, uh, especially those of us that are maybe a little bit older, to sort of argue the faith with people. And and we really, I think at times believe that if we find the perfect argument in the perfect book, that's going to bring faith. And no, it's not. Those things can be helpful. They can knock down some barriers to unbelief, perhaps. But in the end, 
uh, we need to get the gospel out there because that's the thing that the Father has told us he will use to draw people to Jesus. That's an important reminder, especially as we were talking about reason and its limits earlier to place reason in service to the text. There is that that place for us to recognize when it comes to you know speaking to others, it's not going to be a reasonable argument that is going to convert them, but it will be the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word that does that, just as, as Jesus says here, no one comes to the Father, or no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. This is the work of God. And so there's, you know, certainly, as you said, there's a time and place for reasonable arguments, for reasonable propositions of this is why what you're saying is not true. At the same time, there's also the the need for us as Christians to to simply let the truth be the truth and realize we don't have to quote argue it. We can just speak it and let the truth do what it will. Again, thinking back to earlier in John's gospel, where Philip tells Nathaniel, come and see. You know, there's there's no well, let me tell you why something good can come from Nazareth, Nathaniel. No, just come and see. Come and see Jesus. And I think Jesus has that similar attitude here. He's not quote, arguing. He's just speaking the truth and letting his words do the work, knowing that through those words, the Father will draw people to him. All of this for the purpose in verse 44, to raise him up on the last day. And we've heard Jesus talk about this already. The fact that he repeats it should draw our attention. Talk about this purpose of of the Father drawing people to Jesus so that Jesus will raise them up on the last day. Yeah. So this is ultimately the end of what Christ's work is all about, right? Um, Again, uh, he, through his death and resurrection, forgives us our sins, but I think particularly um, John often gives us these phrases of Jesus that just speak about his work uh, of delivering life, right? And and again, those are all tied together, forgiveness, life, salvation— uh, but John tends to many times give us those passages of Jesus where where he talks about this this life that is given, uh, and when we when we hear that, then we should you know rejoice that this is the kind of gift that is given to us. Is not just something again that the reason can understand, even about sort of the removal of a debt, though it is that, but it's a much fuller thing. It's a much more, um, I guess, broad thing that he's talking about, a life that he gives us now. And then as he promises here, uh, that he will raise us up on the last day. And even, right, isn't that the completion of him bringing us to the Father? I was thinking about that too, right? I mean, there's there's a sense in which, of course, we're brought to the Father now, um, a, a very real sense. But uh, ultimately, that final union that we will have with Father and Son will only be there on the day when he raises us up. Yeah, Jesus takes us all the way to the end here. I will raise him up on the last day. This is the goal. This is where we are headed. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We confess it in the creed. Jesus speaks of it very clearly here, and it is a great comfort to us as Christians that when the Father draws us to Jesus, and so we are brought to God, we know that that will be a never-ending thing. We look forward to that resurrection that Christ promises. In verse 45, Jesus says, it's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. He's he's quoting from the Old Testament. Where is Jesus quoting from? What's he saying there in verse 45? Yeah, so he's quoting from 
Isaiah the prophet, and and one of the passages here at least is Isaiah 54, verse 13, where it says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. But in this uh, part of Isaiah in particular, Isaiah uh, is prophesying about the return from exile, and he says that in that context, right, in that period where God's people have been returned from exile, and now um, this messianic period is begun, it's interesting that there's this phrase, right, they're going to be taught by the Lord in a very, you know, the language here is a very direct sense. And then we say, well, gosh, you know, who could have even imagined how literal that was to be taken, right? (laughs) Um, And yet when Jesus starts teaching, in fact, you know, we could say right in this very moment that he speaks this, um, he's doing it, you know, it's sort of another, uh, this scroll is fulfilled in your hearing kind of moment for Jesus. And, and perhaps maybe even more, I know some people believe that, you know, perhaps this was, um, the reading appointed for the day here in the synagogue, or at least one of them. And so he is sort of, you know, just like he is in that other text I mentioned there, that he's, he's simply saying, okay, you just heard this. Now let me tell you it's happening, right? Open your eyes and see that this is coming to fulfillment. Yeah, it's a, it, it would be interesting to, to know if these were the appointed texts or if Jesus is, or, or maybe if one of them is the appointed text, something from the book of Exodus or the Psalms, and Jesus is bringing other scriptures to bear. Either way, I, I think you're right that this is one of those almost mic drop moments of Jesus. This is happening right here in front of you. What Isaiah wrote about, they will all be taught by God. And again, he continues to, to tighten this connection between himself and the Father, He says, after quoting from Isaiah, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. So give us the last part of verse 45, this matter of of hearing and learning from the Father and then coming to Jesus. Well, I think, again, this would have been a pretty explosive statement because these these would be people who again would say, we are taught by the Father. I mean, that's sort of their whole identity is they are the children uh, of the Father. And so when he makes this claim where he says, you know, if you really listened to the Father, you would, you know, come to me, you would believe in me. Well, that's again, quite an explosive statement because obviously the reverse is true that Jesus is saying, if you're not coming to me, you don't really understand the Father, right? So it's mm. it's really casting all of their perceptions of their faith as it stands in the moment uh, in, into a, a bad light, right? Um, uh, kind of saying, you know, this whole thing you think you're doing very well uh, with all your religious efforts, you're actually missing the whole point, right? Um and so that's the the first thing. And then again, he he says this thing, which basically says, you know, if if you're doubting whether I can say this or not, he kind of pulls a trump card here to say, well, the only one that's ever you know seen the Father and therefore knows for certain, I guess you might say, exactly what the Father intends to do is me because I came from the Father. Um, and so you know, it's kind of this back and forth here. Where sometimes, you know, we get this language that the Father draws us to the Son, sometimes the Son draws us to the Father. 
but overall just this connection that you can't have one without the other. You, if you have the father, you'll receive the son, right? Uh, and if you have the son, uh, you have the father. Right. And then, of course, as, as you mentioned, all of this often is, is taught under the third article of the Creed, which speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit. So the the triune God is working to save you, period. I mean, you know, we sometimes we, for the sake of of teaching and, and catechesis, we will speak about the work of the Father in one way and the work of the Son in another and the work of the Holy Spirit in another. And yet there are not three gods, there's there's and not three works of God. There is one work of God together. So uh, you know, we we see how the the mystery of the Holy Trinity is at work here. Jesus is going to bring up the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly much more in later chapters of John's gospel. But what he's saying here certainly sets the stage for all of that. And again, as you said, these are are pretty explosive comments from Jesus. It's it's a wonder that nobody picks up stones to throw them at Jesus just yet. They will as the text goes on, but but not just yet. You can see how his his teaching is building and they are they are not liking what he's saying at this point. This is going to lead to further disputes in the in the coming text as as this conversation, this time in the synagogue in Capernaum continues. So Jesus again draws the connection even tighter between himself and the father through verse 46. And then in verse 47, I think there's maybe a, a, not a shift exactly, but he is, he is when he says, truly, truly, I say to you very key words of Jesus there. It does seem that he's, he's now moving back into the topic more of the matter of bread of life and what that means that he's the bread of life the life that you receive from him and how you receive that life from him. So uh, talk about the the move that Jesus begins to make in verse 47. Yeah, I think you're right that he sort of just made the case that he is the one that teaches them about God. And then he goes back, says, okay, now I'm going to do the teaching, right? He's, he's yeah. sort of given his, um, his credentials, if you will. Mm. Uh, and again, I think you're right, you know, that, um, I mean, you are right that they don't cast stones yet. And I almost wonder if it's that, again, their reason won't even at this point allow them to fully hear what he's claiming, right? Like, mm. I think that's growing in this period that soon he's going to say it so many times, so many ways that eventually they're going to get what he's saying. But it's almost like, you know, today, if we had somebody that we otherwise thought was pretty normal and then all of a sudden started saying things like that they had come down from heaven, we too would be like, well, he must be speaking in metaphor. You know, I, this is a normal guy we know, so we know he's not just sort of crazy speaking this way. So it, it did have to be hard for their reason to take uh, that in. But but here now, he, he sort of says, hey, you know, again, uh, let's uh, tell, uh, you know, the, the, our reason that it has to be silent for a moment. Uh, and it has to listen again to these words, which is, you know, again, now he, he tells them that, you know, whoever believes uh, has eternal life. Um, and so, you know, it, again, if you're going to be taught by God, you better listen in now. And, and this is the chief teaching. The one who believes has eternal life. And this goes back to things that Jesus has said previously in the very near context in verse 29, when they, they had asked about what's the work of God, Jesus says the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. And so this, this theme of faith, and that goes, goes back throughout the gospel of John, even thinking 
back to the perhaps the most famous verse in the gospel that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus brings the the matter of faith into the forefront again. And what's what's striking in the context as well, we just talked about how Jesus on the last day will raise him up, the one whom the Father draws. And yet here it's it's not only eternal life on that last day, but here Jesus says, whoever believes has, this is a present tense, having eternal life. Yeah. And I think this is something we sort of forget at times. I know even sort of, you know, we have these certain ways of talking about um, when a person dies. And sometimes we'll say, right, that they have entered into eternal life. And again, in a certain context, I don't think that's wrong, but I've kind of went away from using that language because of passages like this, where it's like, no, they, and this is sort of the cool thing about the life that we're given is that it does begin now, and yet it cannot be killed even by physical death, right? It's a, it's an enduring thing even through death. So it's not that you have no life, then you die and you get life. No, you have this life that not even death can take from you. And that life already now, the thing we possess now through baptism, right? You, you mentioned, uh, you know, Jesus and Nicodemus talking uh, in chapter three, right? And, and there they talk about baptism uh, and the new life that it offers. But just to remember that that life is already eternal now, it, right? It, it, it's going to endure forever. It's not a, a different life that we need to receive. Uh, we are delivered from the things that sort of hold back that life, uh, if you want to say that, or trouble that life. Uh, but it's much more a removal of of sin than it is a giving of life uh, when we talk about um, what happens at death or what happens at the resurrection. Mm, so the the life has been transferred to to Christ's nearer presence or something like that right. might be another way of, of speaking. Yeah. And again, like you said, it's not necessarily it's not necessarily wrong to to speak in that way that they they've entered into eternal life because there is a you know Saint Paul talks about it is better by far to be there with with Christ and in, in His closer presence. So it's not necessarily wrong, but also let's let's also you know listen to these words of Jesus and understand the life that we have right now by faith is an eternal one, as you said, one that not even death can destroy. And that is that is a precious gift and also something to emphasize and to bring us comfort at the time that a loved one in Christ has died. As Jesus continues then into verse 48, he comes back to that image that is, again, controlling this whole conversation here in the synagogue. He is the bread of life. We hear him repeat that in verse 48. And then he, he uses that to, to move into more of the conversation about manna and to make the, the comparison and contrast between what manna did and didn't do and what he does. Uh, talk again about Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, and then how he continues his preaching in verses 48, 49 and following. Yeah. So I, I think, again, like you said, he does really return us to the, the meat of things here. And probably the first thing I would say is notice here, again, how he does compare the thing that they think is sort of one of the greatest miracles and and is right i mean when we talk about the old testament if you're going to talk about the miracles are there i would hope that the sending of manna each day from heaven would would be listed um but yet he points out again even that had a temporary benefit to the people 
and points that out most poignantly by saying those people that ate that stuff, they died. Uh, and again, that's, that's not to say this stuff was bad. It's just to say that it did not have the power to keep one alive. And this is then where he compares that to himself. Uh, and again, going on, you know, after what we'll look at today, you know, he's going to continue to kind of say this more directly about, you know, that, that we need to eat of him. Uh, and then we have that life that will not end, that life that is uh, eternal. Um, this is, of course, one of these I am statements uh, in John's gospel. Um, and, you know, again, anytime we hear that I am, I always say there's at least a hint of <laughs> that he is God, right? That being the name uh, that God gives for himself. Um, and there's at least a hint, if not more than a hint. But I, I think right here, I think we'd maybe do a disservice that, you know, certainly kind of the most important words here that Jesus speaks are not the I am words, but the, right, I am the bread of life. That's where he goes on to, to focus and, and to say, um, I'm going to give you a bread that's better than the manna of old. Mm, yeah, I, we talked a little bit about that yesterday with the I am pointing us to the name of God. And I think the reason that we we often think about the the divinity of Jesus in connection with that is the place where he very much focuses on the I am in John 8, 58, where he says, before Abraham was, I am. And so we, we connect that to the other text, but not to the point that we lose sight of what he says he is. Here it is, he is the bread of life. In verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And he talks about, and you've mentioned this already, eating of this bread and living forever. And then the bread that he gives is his flesh. And he's, he's going to make this connection even more strongly about eating this bread, eating his flesh as the text moves forward into the next one we'll consider. What is, what's Jesus talking about here with the bread being his flesh and giving that for the life of the world? Well, I think first and foremost, he is telling them that the way he is going to deliver to them this bread of life is to offer up his flesh, right? It, it is going to be that bodily, that fleshly death that delivers that. So I think that's first and foremost is that he wants them sort of to know that this is not going to be accomplished in just like a purely spiritual sense or something, but that he is actually going to somehow give his flesh but then we can't ignore that he then goes on to talk about eating his flesh, uh, which leads us, I think, especially those of us who understand the scriptures, uh, to uh, talk to us about the, the, one of the chief means that God gives us to deliver forgiveness and sustain our faith, namely in the Lord's Supper. We can't hear those words without going, oh, right? We we can imagine when those words are spoken, the pastor standing in front of us and saying, take and eat, right? Uh, the body of the Lord, or the true body of the Lord. Um, so we can't separate this, but I do think at this point, um, his main point is simply that he is going to accomplish this somehow through his body. And I think that too must have been a rather mysterious phrase for them how do you give us bread to eat 
by offering your flesh, right? They, they mm. obviously, as the verse goes on, it's clear that whatever Jesus is talking about, they don't understand it. Their reason is like, this can't be. I don't know what you're even talking about. Um, and yet Jesus says, no, this is exactly how it's going to be. And again, uh, we are left to simply say, ah, yes, Jesus has said so, and I believe it, right? And, and then we see him die uh, on the cross and we go, ah, there it is, right? His body, his flesh uh, being given, offered up for the world so that now we can have eternal life. And then, like I said, I don't think, you know, again, I'll leave it to your further guests to discuss this further. But for those of us who um, understand what Christ himself says of his uh, supper, uh, we can't help but also connect it to that event. Pastor Hoppy, we have about a minute left here on the morning. Help us to wrap things up on this beautiful text from John chapter 6. Give us the good news that is ours in Christ. Yeah, so again, we realize throughout this whole section that there's kind of this back and forth between people speaking with their reason and Jesus revealing truth. And we too need to always be reminded of that, that we too need to let our reason uh, have its place as a gift of God, but not allow it to rule over what Jesus has said. And when we, when we do that, there's nothing but good news for us to have. Because what Jesus says is that for us too, he is that bread of life, which came down from heaven. He is that flesh that was offered up. And again, he then takes that flesh and his blood and he offers it to us in the Lord's Supper that we might live forever uh, and be raised up on the last day. Pastor Philip Hoppe is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas, helping us today to study John chapter 6, verses 41 to 51. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. So glad to be here. Jesus is the bread of life. Feast upon him, dear Christians, and receive that eternal life now and on the last day when Christ raises you from the dead. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron. Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the Gospel of John, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.